Good Heavens, a podcast about the universe with Wayne and Dan. Good Heavens, Wayne. Good morning to you. We are in your house today. How are you this morning? Hi, Dan. Good to be back to Good Heavens. Yes. Uh, today we are going to talk about, uh, my goodness, it is the uh, sixth, this is our sixth episode, isn't it? How about that? How about it, indeed. It's fantastic. Um, we are going to talk about exoplanets today. And uh, I know this, this is your field of expertise, correct? This is what got you... Uh, this I, is- yeah, I've spent a lot of time on this. I've written some articles uh, from a creation point of view on this. So this is about planets out there. Planets <laughs> out there orbiting other stars. Planets that are outside of our solar system. But it's interesting, as we'll see in just a minute, that uh, astronomers, the professional... International Astronomical Union is having a hard time coming up with the definition of planets because of the variety of different things that have been found in the last decade or so, right? Right. The definition of planet that the International Astronomical Union came up with is uh, only applicable in our own solar system. They don't have an official definition for an extrasolar planet. We need definitions that are literally out of this world. I've been thinking I should come up with one. We'll there you see. go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, uh, but most importantly, I think uh, we're, we're coming at this from a, we're trying to come at this from a biblical perspective. What, uh, what should Christian theology, what should Christians think? How should we think about uh, this quest, this search for other worlds? Is that going to encroach upon classical Orthodox Christianity? Is that going to really threaten people's faith if we find cyanobacteria somewhere uh, you know we're going to we're going to try to get into that but so let's start by talking about a couple of scriptures that we picked out for this episode you have something from isaiah and then i'll read something from colossians sure so i just look at this this is wow this is more more uh worlds that god made out there uh but you know, this is isaiah chapter 45 verse 18 it says for this is what the lord says he who created the heavens, he is God. He who fashioned and made the earth, he founded it. He did not create it to be empty, but formed it to be inhabited. He says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Now that's from Isaiah. Isaiah. That's fantastic. Um, one of my favorite verses that I think pertains to what we're talking about is uh, written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Colossae. Uh, this is from the first chapter of the book of Colossians. And it is, uh, it starts, I have it in uh, verse 15. And he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything, even in a search for exoplanets. I was reading a book uh, in preparation for our broadcast, uh, just published this year, 2017, and 40 pages into it. These are secular astronomers and astrophysicists. One's a planetary scientist and one is an astrophysicist. Um, And 40 pages into this book on exoplanets, they're talking about Jesus. 
And I thought, you know, that's pretty cool because now they're not, I don't think they're believers, but it's, it points out, I think, how the heavens declare the glory of God. And you can't long talk about the heavens without talking about the one who created them. So even the people who really are not Christians and you wouldn't think that they would bring up spiritual things, they do. Yeah. Even if they're criticizing it, they'll, they inevitably, these things come, come back to spiritual points. Right. The harder you try to ignore God, the more you start sounding like his, his, <laughs> the people that, that are right. Christians, right? So, so if God is not there, then why mention it? Right. If it doesn't have anything to do with uh, spiritual things, then why even mention it? Exactly. So it's, it, it is truly remarkable that the heavens do declare the glory of God, and whenever you talk about the universe, uh, God comes up in, in context in, in the most unexpected ways. Um, but we have to, since this is uh, uh, astronomy, planetary science, Wayne, and this is your, this is your area, uh, it would be helpful to def to uh, to come up with some uh, definitions that we can all kind of understand in terms of uh, important words and terms to know for uh, exoplanets or extrasolar planets or planets outside of our own solar system. So, what are the important terms we need to know? Okay, so uh, <clears throat> one, for a long time, the most commonly used method to detect extra, extrasolar planets was as been called the radio velocity method but what this means is like uh the shift in the light from the motion of the star so we cannot well let me say normally you cannot directly see a planet there are ways of doing it today uh but normally you see the star and so planet can make the star wobble as it goes around it and, and this might seem hard for people to believe but our own uh, star actually wobbles like this our own sun wobbles because of the motion of the planets around it we talked about that when we talked about jupiter jupiter right. is so massive it makes our sun do a little jig right so like if you're at a a train track and you hear a, a train go by with its with its whistle on. As it goes away, you'll hear the pitch of the sound go down. Yeah. And if it's coming toward you, it'll get higher as it comes closer. So light does the same thing. And when uh, if light is if, if a star is moving away from us, the light gets shifted red. Mm -hmm. And if it's moving toward us, it gets shifted blue. Okay. So that uh, when the star is wobbled by the planet it makes the starlight sort of wobble with it. It's, so we can tell the star yeah. is either slightly moving away from us right. or slightly moving toward us. And that slight difference in the star's motion toward us uh, is indicative of mass going around it. Right. So if you know how massive the star is, you can work out what the mass of the planet is. You, what they do is they observe the planet over a period of time, normally over several years, so they have to be very familiar with the starlight from that star mm -hmm. so they can rule out that the changes they're seeing is because of a planet and it's not because of the star itself. Nothing. The star's not losing its own mass. Well, the stars do changes of their own. And so you have to rule out that it's not just the normal changes in a star. So the radial velocity yeah. is, is our ability to detect uh, the effect of mass on a star. And we are assuming that that mass, though we can't see it, is a planet of some kind. Something is going around the star causing it to wobble. Right. So you can work out what the orbit of that planet would be 
and uh, predict when you'll see it next. Okay. Okay. Now, there's one tricky thing about that, though, is like uh, Jupiter goes around our sun once every 12 years. So it's it's interesting that we, we would have to find, we would hopefully have to find orbits of these objects that are, you know, more rapid than 12 years because we might see a wobble. We might not ever see it again for another 10, 12 years. So a lot of these stars that we look at, we have to look at over time to catch these things, correct? Right. And so this method uh, means that if a planet is bigger, it wobbles the star more, and that makes it easier to detect. Mm -hmm. If the star is smaller and less massive, then that makes it easier for a planet to wobble it. Mm -hmm. Or if the planet is up close to the star... That makes it easier for the okay. star to wobble. The important thing to remember, though, so, I think, for the radial velocity detection method, you can't see the planet right. itself. You're looking at the behavior of the planet star. Right. You're not seeing an actual object. Right. You don't and know what it looks like. And so if this method is totally successful and you have a great example, all you learn is maybe the mass of the planet and what its orbit is like. Okay. Approximately. That's you, it. That's all you can you don't, infer from that. You don't that. know anything about the, what the planet looks like. Don't know if it has an atmosphere. Right. Don't know you, if you it's can't rocky. Even, you don't even know if it's rocky or gaseous. Right. Okay. So it could be a Jupiter. It could be a gaseous Jupiter, and you wouldn't know if it's, it's content, right. it's metallicity, it's right. magnetic field. You wouldn't know any of that. Right. Okay. So that's one method, the radial velocity method, where you're just looking at a star. Uh, the other one is what I'm the one I'm more familiar with is the transit method. It's a little easier to explain. What's the transit method? Transit means that something passes in front of the star along our line of sight. So if you imagine looking at a star in a telescope, Dan, uh, let's say that you could you could see super you had super human eyesight, so you could detect minute changes in in the star's light. Mm -hmm. You look through the telescope. And there's a just minute little dip in the brightness of that star just for a little bit, and then it goes back up to normal again. So in my backyard, when I'm looking through a st looking at a star through a telescope, a mosquito might fly across the opening of my telescope. <laughs> yeah, and you might get mixed up. Wow, something happened to the star. Wow, a, a transit. Yeah. Uh, now this is that this transit method is the primary method that the Kepler uh, Planet Hunter Telescope. Uh, utilizes is the transit method right so kepler is a is a telescope and it's put basically in earth's orbit but behind earth's position in the orbit and it's out in the cold of space and it looks to a certain area in our galaxy it basically watches one of the arms in our milky way spiral galaxy and it's looking for a minute dip in the light of a of a star that could be a planet, and and Kepler is a very very sensitive instrument. It it can detect very minute changes in the light, and it's it's very it's very ideally made for this. So, it has detected uh, over four thousand, maybe five thousand uh, possible planets, and so after it detects them. They are called a Kepler object of interest. Okay, KOI. KOI, mm -hmm. and they are given a KOI number. And then if they are confirmed by another group with a different kind of instrument, a different kind of telescope or something, then they are called uh, uh, confirmed. 
and then they're given a different number. They'll okay. Be called Kepler or whatever. Kepler so, 144 or something. So when we're talking about confirmed planetary objects, we're talking mm -hmm. about objects that have been looked at by more than one team of astronomers. Yes. Okay, and so there's about 3,500 3, 3, to 3,500 confirmed planetary exoplanet-like objects. Right. But there's upwards of 5,000 of these objects that have been detected so far. Um, about 1,500 have not been confirmed. That's a rough number. Um, but they right now the exoplanet count is somewhere in the neighborhood between three and five thousand, uh, give or take uh, certain sites, d depending on where you go. So, anyway, so those are the two primary ways in which you can detect a planet uh, through the radial velocity method and through the transit method. Are there other ways? Uh, there are other ways. One of the really interesting things now today is something called direct imaging. Uh, there's a limited number of these, but um, what, what happens is you can take an extremely sensitive infrared telescope mm -hmm. and you can watch a, a star for a certain period of time. You have to, you have to uh, study the, the light from that star in great detail so that you can digitally subtract out all the light of the star. Okay. And then what you're left with is whatever is outside the star or near it. So that can expose planets going around the star. So that makes an infrared picture of a planet. And they can actually see planets moving around a star in these infrared images. Okay. But... Uh, there's also uh, false positives at times. These these images get uh, they get uncertain at times because you may see things that look like a planet but it's not real, or you know there's some problems they have on these sometimes. So, in the way we detect ex exoplanets or extrasolar planets is really limited in terms of we can't see the details that we really want to see right now. We can't see the, right. the, the composition. We can't see the atmosphere so much. We can't tell uh, a lot of things that we would require in order to know if this was like Earth in any way. So Correct. when we hear in the popular press when it comes out, there's one of these discoveries that are confirmed. A team will confirm an object. We often hear in the headlines that they are Earth-like. In mm -hmm. that, really, let's break that down. What do they really mean when the when the headline is Earth-like planet discovered or something like Earth or an Earth-like planet candidate? What are they saying? What's really going into that? They're phrase? basically talking about the size of it or the mass of it. So there, uh, a transit that we were talking about mm -hmm. is the best method because you can find out more information about the planet. Okay. So the planet has passed in front of the star. Now the star's light will pass through the the atmosphere of the planet if it has an atmosphere. Okay. And so you can detect things. You can figure out, like if the planet's atmosphere were eighty percent nitrogen, you could probably figure that out. But, you could see it by the you, light spectrum. You won't be able to figure out everything of, of what's in that atmosphere, but. You can you can get some information about what it's made of. You can tell how, how you can confirm the size of the planet. You can figure out the density because you can figure out both the mass and the size. You have to get both mass and the size to know the density. And if you can get density, then you know if it's a rock, a rocky planet, or uh, a gaseous planet. Okay. So, but we're still missing a lot of important data. So right. a lot of these Earth-like planets are three to five to, they're what they call super-Earths. 
where their their yeah. mass is believed to be something like three to five times greater than that of Earth, um, or their their radius is something you know super Earth size, a little bit bigger than Earth. Um, but when you hear Earth-like, it, you know, don't we're not. It's not like the scientists are seeing water and glaciers and mountains and birds, and we don't have that kind of detail available to us with the technology that we have right now. Correct? Right. We we can't tell what the surface is like. We can't tell what materials it has. Uh, we could tell a little bit about the atmosphere if we're lucky on the transit, but we can't even know what the surface is made of. Okay. Are, are there any other technical terms that we might want to be familiar with before we press on here with, with looking at some of the details of um, some of these? We should talk about tides. Tides. Many of these extrasolar planets, Dan, they're way up close to, our, to the star. Now, so for, in our solar system, the closest planet to the sun is Mercury. Mm-hmm. It is 0.39 astronomical units. And an astronomical See, unit is 93 million miles. Yes. So Earth's orbit defines what an astronomical unit is and that's the distance we are from our sun 93 million miles well so yeah so that 93 million miles that's a one that's, that's a one that's, that's one the AU. one au mm-hmm. and, and mercury is at 0.39 now many extrasolar planets are much closer than mercury is okay so it's it's hot if the stars are anything like our yeah. sun so it's, they're very hot and and uh there's no way that gas could condense at that distance because it's too hot. It's too hot. And most of these planets that are closer to their sun are tidal locked. It's like uh, Earth and the moon. So okay. the moon has a spin, yeah. but its spin is time to be the same as the period for one orbit. Got it. It spins one one spin mm-hmm. <laughs> and the same time it, it does goes around the orbit the yeah. around the earth okay so it's in tidal lock as well. yeah or the the astro- astronomy term is it's in synchronous rotation okay so planets do this around stars in extrasolar planets and many of them uh the tidal forces are very significant so tidal forces are about the fact that okay you have a planet let's say jupiter but let's say Jupiter is uh, like a third of the distance from its star that Mercury is. Very typical so mm-hmm. many of these exo- exoplanets. So it's uh, way up close to the star. Now, the star's gravity is different on the near side of Jupiter than on the far side. Okay. So it distorts the shape. So it's not a perfect circle. It- pulls it out a little bit right so it might stretch it into something a little bit like a football or uh-huh. a rugby ball or somewhere something. between a beach ball and yeah. a rugby ball or a football right? and or it might just make a, a big bulge on one side of the planet mm-hmm. and the planet will make a bulge on the side of the star too got it okay so that's like newton's newton's laws for every force there's an equal and opposite, opposite reaction force sure it works with tides got it and that's the force on the, it kind of changes the shape all right. Of the planet and the star. So a lot of the, the, the thing that they're running into when they're discovering these extrasolar, extrasolar planets or these exoplanets is that uh, the Earth-like planets uh, seem to be a lot closer to their parent star. And the, and the planets that are a lot closer to our parent stars, their parent stars as well, are a lot larger. They're finding hot Jupiters. So there's planets like Jupiter that are closer in to these suns uh, almost exactly opposite of what we find in our own solar system. So we have our rocky right. planets close to our sun, 
and the assumption was for a long time that oh, if we find other systems like, so ours, like ours, it would be like ours yeah. because it it, so. it comes from the theory of the protoplanet the protoplanetary disk where a star forms and there's a dusty disk that spins around the star and then rocky planets form on the inside and then gaseous planets form on the outside, and we expected to find the same kind of uh, configuration in other solar systems. But in fact, what we're discovering, it seems to be quite the inverse. There's gas giants near their parent star, and there's rocky planets, if there are rocky planets, in, in that we've switched places here. So this is a head-scratcher, isn't it? Right. This was very surprising, and so they had to come up with new theories to deal with that. Uh, so our system turned out to not be so typical as they thought it was. Okay, And it's not just our planet that's special uh, and designed for us, uh, Dan. It's also our whole solar system. Our it, star is very our, unique. Our sun is, is special because it's very stable. It's calm. It's a calm star, a very predictable, stable star. Right. And that's not the case for many of these extrasolar planets. Right. They're, they're up close to a star that varies. It can have powerful eruptions. It can give off X-rays. Uh, so even if there w- if it was uh, the right temperature in the uh, on these planets, it could the, any if there was life on it, it could get zapped by X rays. Right. So it's like a, it's a, the difference between saying having a a dragon for a pet and a and a rabbit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it so, would be a lot easier to live live with a rabbit than a, than a dragon. These these other stars are so violent and and they can strip the atmospheres off, and some of them are colder. Some of yeah. them are, are brighter, more mm-hmm. more luminous, um, but they're far more active than our sun. Our sun is very docile, and it's unusual, too, because our sun doesn't have a, a companion star, and I think like 60 to 70% of the stars, known stars in the universe are companion stars. They have uh, two to three stars in a system. Our, st- our sun doesn't have that. So you have our sun has a certain mass. It has a certain luminosity. It has a certain behavior pattern. Um, it's like the Apostle Paul says in uh, 1 Corinthians, that star differs from star in glory. Right. So the, the other problem isn't just the composition of the planet, but what is their parent or host star like? You know, is it is it hab- habitable? Does that star give those planets uh, the ability to have an atmosphere and all the things that we enjoy here on Earth? So there's so many variables that go into to that as well that make it very difficult for us to think that these planets could be Earth-like. Right. So, you know, Dan, I, I, I've been a science fiction fan for a long time, and there's all these stories about um, life from other worlds and aliens and, and all this. But and this is all fun fiction, and I enjoy it, but it's fiction. Right. And the real story is that the prospects of life from what we really know from exoplanets is not very good. So, I, in fact, I know one of your colleagues and somebody that you know, uh, Danny Faulkner, who's an astronomer, just came mm-hmm. out with a, a book, published a book this fall. Um, and he says, uh, as of 2017, nearly 4,000 extrasolar planets have been discovered. Um, the evidence suggests that planets are indeed abundant in the universe. But he says that given all the unique characteristics of Earth, we have not really found any Earth-like planets, nothing that comes anywhere close. So, And then he goes on to make this very interesting point. He says, a sample size of nearly 4,000 is large, and many conclusions are reached in science with far smaller sample sizes. Mm-hmm. So in other words, 
Take Earth and compare them to all the extrasolar planets that we have found, one in 4,000 if you want to just be rough with it, and uh, one out of 4,000. With that conclusion, what can you extrapolate from there being planets that are really genuinely Earth-like? One in every 4,000, and the more we find them, the more that they continue not to be anything like our planet, except maybe similarly in mass. Uh, and some of their orbital periods are so quick and so fast yes. that, uh, that you couldn't have the year and the seasons. And some of them, we don't know, their axial tilt, the thing that gives Earth seasons, right? Yes. There's so many right. things. When you, when you think of Earth-like <clears throat> planet, when you see that in the headlines, there's so many other factors that are being sort of glossed over, I guess, if you want to say that, that, that there really is so much more that we need in order for these things to be genuinely Earth-like. Yeah, there's a great hope of finding an, Earth, uh, an Earth-like planet that could be a habitable, habitable planet. But let's talk about what it means to be habitable. Yeah, because, because we talk about there's this thing, and in, 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 as you know it, called the habitable zone. Yes. There's a, there's a certain range that a planet can be from its host star that would allow it, or they call it sometimes the Goldilocks zone. Right. Not too hot. That's a close-up to your, to your star. Too hot, you can't have life. If you're too far away, too cold. So there's this zone between hot and cold, the, the porridge, the perfect porridge, the perfect right. planetary porridge, right? Yes. So, so you can come and, and have a seat at the table and partake. Um, that's called the habitable zone. And that varies from system to system depending on the mass and the size and the luminosity of the star. And depending on the mass and the size and the orbit, orbital rotation and all kinds of other things of the planet itself. So go into a little bit more detail about habitable zones. Yeah, so there's at least a couple of different definitions of the habitable zone. Uh, but the one I think is the best is uh, based on the greenhouse effect. Okay. So it depends a great deal on the star and what kind of light and radiation comes from the star. Every object if at a certain distance from a star has a certain temperature right. that, that it will reach based on the distance from the star. And so if you have a real bright star, our, our star is kind of a little bigger than average and brighter than average. Uh, and so that makes, uh, that makes the habitable zone farther away yeah. in our system mm-hmm. compared to many of these extrasolar planet systems. So uh, if a planet is up close to the star, the greenhouse effect of any carbon dioxide or water and other things in the in the atmosphere will heat up the planet. That's what happens at Venus. Yeah. And Venus is very hot. But if the planet is farther away, the greenhouse effect may not be enough to keep water from freezing. Mm-hmm. And so that I think is the best way to define the habitable zone. Okay. Okay. In in that definition, in our system. Uh, the habitable zone would be from 0.99 AU to 1.7 AU. So there's a mathematical uh, stretch that astronomers have that they they calculate in terms of when they find a planet within this zone, uh, then they start to th- consider the possibility of um, uh, liquid water, right? Right. So, so So here's what we can't find. Liquid water. <laughs> you can't tell by our current methods you can't visually put a mark on water but because they are in this mathematical zone that you just defined they think 
it's possible that water could be there, and hence where there is water, maybe there is some kind of cyanobacteria, biological life form right. out it, there. It is true that there are my, uh, microscopic bacteria on Earth that can survive in very extreme environments. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there's, there may be bacteria that could even survive if they were thrown out into space. Okay. But... Uh, it's the question is how do you get life from non-life? Right, and that's that's one of the things I think uh, Danny uh, Faulkner was saying. He believes, and this is what drives the extrasolar planet research. He he believes the ultimate aim of the search for extrasolar planets is to prove to demonstrate that life is common in the universe. So it's a it's a naturalistic assumption. Um, based on the idea that life naturally arose mm-hmm. from non-life on our planet. Right. And that our planet naturally came about through unguided, unintelligent, uh, random, natural processes. So the search for extrasolar planets and life upon them is based on the naturalistic assumption that life came from non-life. And, and Wayne, this is what I, what I kept reading in the secular uh, research, this idea, this hope it, it's very eschatological. It's very. Uh, it's it's the naturalist sort of resurrection narrative that they believe, uh, or they hope, and they assume that life can come from non-life, and uh, so they go to these worlds that are inherently lifeless, looking for life, assuming that there is life there, that it develops naturally. Right. Uh, so these worlds are. Uh harsher uh, than our environment on earth and even even with our environment on earth that we know supports life they have not explained how life could come from non-living matter right so it's like going an example i thought of it's like you know mary and the other ladies going to the tomb that sunday morning and uh, they're not expecting to find their teacher to be alive right they're fully prepared that he is <laughs> They they know he's dead. Yeah, uh, and and so they go to the tomb and and not expecting to find life, and uh, and yet the, the the secular astronomers will go to these lifeless worlds, anticipating, expecting almost that that life will be there. So there's almost more hope in extrasolar planet research than the than the early disciples had in their teacher who who rose from the dead. And so it's like the like you pointed so out. What, where should we put our hope? Yeah, exactly. Yes. And it's like what uh, what the angel says to to the women. Why do you seek the living among the dead? <laughs> the, the living one among the dead. He is not here, for he has risen, right? And so, but I really, you know, in all due respect, I think that that the the, the kind of thing that I was reading in this research was really this driving hope that uh, that we're going to find some kind of life. And I don't even really think it's an issue about finding life. I think that would be exciting, and I think that's fine, and maybe there's some kind of bacterial life out there, and maybe somebody one day will make that discovery. That really isn't even the issue. It's the interpretation of yeah. what that would mean specifically for Christian theology. Oh, look, if we found life somewhere else, then, well, you know, what's that say about the Bible, and what's that say about theology? In that secular book I was reading, the astronomers bring up Jesus on page 40 and says, you know, if we found life, uh, this is really going to call into question a lot of uh, theology. In fact, there's a discipline they talk about now called, uh, I think it's exotheologians or exotheology, the idea of, you know, (laughs) what do we do with theology if we find life in other worlds? 
Um, but like we said at the outset, uh, Jesus created all things, whether they're visible to us or not. Uh, he is the Lord of the universe. He created all things. So even if we found life, it, it would be surprising, but it, it would certainly not be any kind of threat to the Christian, to the Christian hope. Uh, because I think the, the search for life in these other planets is kind of like the reverse naturalistic hope. We're going we're gonna to hope we find life out there. Right. So there's a lot of hope uh, based on what we know of natural processes and the assumption that life evolved on Earth. If it evolved here, and there's many, many worlds out there, and there are many exoplanets in our galaxy. There's many of them. But uh, just because life is here doesn't mean that it could naturally arise there. Right. And uh, there's also a hope that kind of like given enough time, almost anything could happen. Given big numbers, many, many, many planets, some combinations out there must work out right, right. for life. Well, like these. But what, what if it's not a matter of just playing the numbers and the odds? Yeah. If, what, if, what if it requires a supernatural creation? Yeah. I mean, the, the astronomers that I was reading were talking about the development of the eukaryotic cell. Uh, the eukaryotic cell is where the DNA is in the nucleus, mm-hmm. and the prokaryotic cell is where the DNA is outside the nucleus. And mm-hmm. they, they posit a scenario in a distant world that says, well, you know, on Earth, the prokaryotic cells just decided to come together to make a eukaryotic cell about 2 billion years ago. I mean, that's the kind of explanation, that's the oversimplified explanation that you get. But it's driving the hope, again, that this prokaryotic eukaryotic cellular development just naturally arose without any intelligence well, behind that's, it that's a completely theoretical idea it's just a speculative it idea and uh, there's a lot of things that are thrown out and some of them might even be physically possible conceivably but extremely unlikely in reality because just because you can come up with a theory doesn't mean that real systems would really allow for it. Right. And the other interesting thing that I found is that as these scientists were de- were describing the two billion year old natural process of the development of the eukaryotic cell on a pre on a you know on an ancient Earth, uh, they said that multicellular organisms are necessary for intelligent life. Okay. Right. So they they assume that, well intelligence must at a minimum require uh, multicellular organisms. But what's interesting is that while they admit that multicellular organisms are naturally uh, required for intelligence, they could not bring themselves to say that the whole process of the development of the eukaryotic cell was itself a sign of intelligence. Mm. So that, it was a really interesting dichotomy there, I found, that I thought. Um, so tell Wayne, we got just a few minutes here, what, uh, briefly talk about one of the most interesting, some of the most interesting extrasolar planets that are out there right now and what you know about them. Well, uh, there's a really interesting one called uh, WASP-18b. WASP-18b. And I like this one. It's interesting. So uh, let me tell you about the WASP. The WASP is an acronym for Wide Area Search for Planets. And there's a number of different uh, research groups looking for extrasolar planets, and the, the WASP team is mainly out of Britain, but it's a very international team. And uh, so they have two special telescope devices, Dan. They have two devices. That One is in the north hemisphere off the coast of uh, Africa and the other is in South Africa. Okay. And and so they have one in each hemisphere and they, there's eight CCD cameras on, the, on these telescopes. So, that, so 
these are a wide angle. Okay. And what it looks, uh, it looks in the sky every night. So they run this in automated manner every night to look at the whole sky over time. And they look for this little dip in the light of the star. So they're trying to find a transit. So these can actually penetrate the Earth's atmosphere to look at these things. They have the ability to do that. Well, it's, CCD cameras are extremely sensitive. Okay. So, yeah, it has a way of multiplying light. So it, 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 cancel, so, it does cancel out the effect of our atmosphere then so, in some degree. Yeah. So they would t- they try to look at a big part of the sky so that some other group, like the Kepler maybe, hopefully, could, could look and do a transit okay. and find out more detail. So WASP... Um, 18b is a planet that's very close to its star, extremely close to the star. So this was uh, discovered in 2009. Um, this planet is thought to have, be about 10 times the mass of Jupiter. Wow. It's only 0.02 AU from its star. So that's, that's really hot. That's less than a tenth of the distance of Mercury from our sun. <laughs> so this thing is crispy. Yes. It's a French fry. It's a very hot planet, and it orbits the star in only 0.94 Earth days. So it orbits the star in less than a day. So, so a year is the a year is a day. <laughs> it's really whizzing around the planet, the star. Woo, hang on to your hats. It's hot and fast. So that's right. And uh, so... Um, Any chance life's going to be on that? I don't. It's not going to have life, and it seems to be a gaseous planet. But uh, the thing is that it's probably going to spiral into the star. Okay, it's getting and closer if, every year. And every if, year, every if day. You, if you <laughs> model the tidal forces and treat it like it's Jupiter, mm-hmm. then it would spiral into the star in about 650,000 years. Our years or their years? Our years. Okay. Wow. That's not a, that's not good news for the inhabitants of that. Uh... So here's the problem with this this creates, and this is why it's interesting. They believe this star is a young star, so they would say this star is somewhere from about a half a billion years old to 1.7 billion years old, and so if the star is is a billion years old. What has the planet been doing all this time? How did, <laughs> How did it, it get there? If it, if it formed early, like they believe planets should form. With their star. How can it still be there? And not how could it last this long? In that to, position. Right. Given the fact that it could, in less than a billion years, would spin into its... So they believe that extrasolar planets have to form farther away mm-hmm. and then migrate, migrate in. in. They move mm-hmm. in. Is what the theory is. So, they, and what makes them migrate is the disk of dust and gas that's around the star. But that disk doesn't last forever. It just no, it, does. it dissipates in, in a few million years or something or less. So, how? What happened to this planet? Was it sitting out there for a long time and, and drifted? And in. then all of a sudden, something made it migrate in. If so, what made it migrate? And if it if it started close to the star, how could it form? Yeah. Yeah. And and how come it's still there after a billion years? And then, uh, th- th- so that's fascinating. The other fascinating aspect I thought, um, briefly we could touch on this, is uh, <laughs> I misspelled this on our uh, advertisement. Uh, I said rouge planets, but they're actually these things. <laughs> <laughs> okay. There may be some rouge with colored ones out there. <laughs> yeah. them, but there probably are rouge planets out actually there. Actually rogue planets. Uh, rogue planets. That I, was your rogue spelling. That was my rogue spelling of rouge. Rouge or rogue. So there's rouge. There may be rouge rogue planets. I don't know. 
that's certainly true. But rogue planets are planets without a star. They just kind of wander through uh, uh, the, the universe. Uh, and they don't know a whole lot about them because they have no parent star. So the light, it would be very hard because planets reflect the light of their star. And so without a parent star, it's hard to find these things. But they're out there and they have found some, true? They seem to be, but there's a still controversy over what those objects really are. Okay, okay. Debate. But uh, it could be that sometimes planets get kicked out by these Thrown systems. out, like, the so spinning. If there's multiple stars or multiple planets, there's some complicated uh, interactions between objects that can okay. happen. So it's possible... That a planet could get kicked out, thrown out by the ro- yeah. by the rotational velocity of, of the, the well, system probably itself. by passing near another planet or, or one of the okay. stars or something. Okay, um, and th- so the the fascinating aspect of of these worlds uh, can be really shown in the, the 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 struggle that astronomers are coming up with the International Astronomical Union, uh, the official naming body of celestial objects, is having a very difficult time. Uh, coming up with a conceptual idea of what constitutes a planet. And the astronomers that I was reading say that based on the IAU's definition of a planet right now, Mm -hmm. if you were to move Earth out to where Pluto was, Earth would no longer be a planet by definition. So what's really interesting is that they're having, there's so many of these wonderfully weird objects out there uh, that there's, the IAU is having a hard time creating a conceptual framework to, to identify what these things actually are, which I thought was fascinating. Yeah, in fact, Dan, one of the points from this uh, definition of planets is that a planet has to be something that has cleared away objects from its orbit. Okay. But this never happens. No, we got a moon. What well, do you? <laughs> Jupiter collects objects in its yeah, orbit. Yeah, it's got like sixty-four because, moons. 67 because moons. of its mass, it captures objects. It doesn't clean it out. Earth it... has objects near its orbit now. It has yeah. little near-Earth objects that orbit around Earth's orbit in this yeah. really weird motion. Uh, really strange motion, Dan. Uh, Johann fan- Kepler would say, "Good heavens! Good how heavens! Can, what is how this? can an object do this? <laughs> There's objects like this around our orbit, right? Right. So well, how, how could Earth even satisfy? How, the how could we do that? But I think uh, I think one of the things I think as I was reading this literature, uh, the, the 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 secular naturalistic science uh, kind of, I think I, I created this kind of thing. I wrote this. I was writing about this in preparation uh, from the Apostle Paul's. Uh, talking to the Corinthians about the resurrection of Jesus. And I sort of inverted Paul's, uh, Paul's hope, the hope of the resurrection, and I turned it around into a scientific hope yeah. of life coming out of non-life. And, and this is kind of a parody, and I, I mean it in all due respect, but I, I, I got the impression that this is kind of the spirit behind extrasolar research and the hope of finding life out there. And, uh, you know, in one of these days... The eschaton shall arise in a moment in the twinkling of satellite data at a NASA press conference, for the media will sound and a dead planet will be raised, irrefutable Earth-like, and our concept of life shall be changed. For the perishable religious doctrines must be put on the imperishable findings of science, and the mortal religious dogma must be put on the, must put on the immortality of scientific rationality. 
And when this perishable religious doctrine will have put on the imperishable nature of science and this mortal dogma will have put on the immortality of scientific knowledge, then will come about the saying that is written, religion is swallowed up in victory. O oh, religion, where is your victory? O oh, dogma, where is your sting? <laughs> so it's, it's a reverse scientific that, hope. That, that's the opposite of what you and I think. Right, and, exactly. You know. But, but that, that, of course, is, is Paul talking about our resurrection hope. Right. But when you read the excitement and the fervor and the passion and the drive and the intensity of these uh, research efforts to find life it has that eschatological hope that we're going to find life darn it and and we're going to find it and when we do we're going to turn right around to the theologians and say what about this guys you know what do you what do you say about this you know yeah i think we should we should remember our own fallibility and and give glory to god for what we discover that's right and so it's it's really interesting to me that when in discussions cutting edge 21st century discussions about extrasolar planets that God still factors into the discussion, uh, specifically Jesus. Right. And to me, that just says even more so how the heavens declare the glory of God. Good heavens indeed. Good heavens. All right. It's been great, Wayne, and uh, we will see you next time. Okay. Good heavens. Has it ended already? Well, you can listen to it again if you want to. And we hope you've learned something about exoplanets. If nothing else, if you're planning a family vacation to one of these wonderful worlds anytime soon, just remember to take a little extra oxygen, some additional sunscreen, and some warm clothing. You never know where you might end up. Thank you for listening, and we hope to see you again next time on Good Heavens. Good Heavens.